Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Good morning. Thank you for getting up bright and early. It's late in London. In a couple of hours, there'll be a reception at 11 Downing Street to promote a book by Joe Johnson on the relationship between the UK and India with the Financial Times, at which the launch of Names Not Numbers Mumbai will be announced. So I feel like a minor version of Harvey Goldsmith doing a a live simulcast event. Welcome to Names Not Numbers. I won't reprise completely what it's about because there's a little note about it in the front of your programmes. But suffice to say that when you say we're discussing individuality and what it means today, almost everybody says, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, I'm interested in that. And in fact, the taxi driver on the way in said, what are you doing in New York? And I said, well, we're here on business. And he said, oh, good, you're bringing dollars to New York City. I said, yes, we are. He said, what kind of business, what kind of event? And I said, we're, we're uh, discussing individuality in a mass age. And he said, ah, Massage. Very good. (laughs) So, it's an entirely individual take on individuality in a mass age. Um, I'm going to thank the individuals before I thank the brand names. Uh, Our chair, Janet Goldsmith, has been invaluable in helping us form and shape the two days that lie ahead. Our London team, uh, headed by Emma Fisher and David Braham, and our local team, Uh, headed by Vesna Hildreth, have been fantastic. The names of the brands associated with this event, I think, have given us the confidence to come to New York, to have the chutzpah to come from the UK, where we started Names Not Numbers. The Financial Times has supported us from the beginning, as has Jaguar Land Rover. Uh, I won't do the whole roll call of individuals, because I might save that for other, other sessions. But suffice to say that every single partner involved in the next two days have been crucial to us. Before I hand over to Gillian Tett to run the first session with Ken Arletta, I'm going to give you a bit of housekeeping. We're here for most of the day. There's a lunch uh, hosted by Edelman four blocks down the street at the Mondrian Hotel. For those of you that need to work as well as listen, there is a breakout room just behind you in which this event is being live broadcast, so you don't feel constrained to be in this room the whole day. Um, It's being podcast for posterity, so please don't be shy, and please consider that your remarks are on the record. Turn your mobile telephones off. Your Twitter hashtag is E-I-N-N-N, and for those of you that are waiting to connect online, you uh, go to the internet thing here and you press conferences, names not numbers in the drop down menu and editorial intel with two L's and I'm reliably told that gets you online. Um, So without further ado I'm going to hand you over to one of the most highly regarded journalists in the world, Gillian Tett. She's the US managing editor of the Financial Times. She is uh, genuinely a polymath. She's an anthropologist by training, as those of you who read her column in the Financial Times Weekend magazine know. And so she brings 
an incredible breadth to her writing. Um, her book, Fool's Gold, was a New York Times bestseller. And she is going to introduce properly and fully Ken Alita for our first session. Gillian and Ken, thank you. Well, many thanks, Julia, for that introduction. And welcome to all of you to what promises to be a fascinating two days' worth of debate and discussion. Now, the title of the conference is Names, Not Numbers, and I'm here with a great name, one of the great names in modern American journalism, Ken Auletta. I'm sure he's very well known to most of you. He writes the, um, the column Annals of Communication for the New Yorker. He's written 11 books, is that right? Five of which have been bestsellers. And perhaps most relevantly to today's proceedings, he wrote an extremely highly regarded best-selling book on Google um, three years ago, two years ago? Two. Two years ago, called Google, The End of the World as We Know It. And much of what is going on with Google, much of what Ken has described, is very relevant to the issue of individuality and social dynamics in the modern age, because perhaps nothing has changed the debate, the landscape, as much as the rise of the internet giants and social media. Never before has mankind had tools which can potentially unite us more forcefully, but also in some ways fragment us into new groups, and perhaps most interestingly of all, trap us into tunnels of customization, of bespoke identities, of our own making. So perhaps I can start by asking you, in light of your work on Google, when you look at what the social media groups are doing today, do you think that the issue of individuality is being enhanced or undermined by the rise of the internet? Both. I mean, I think that, that you have to uh, go back to something F. Scott Fitzgerald once wrote, which is that he said the mark of an intelligent person is someone who has an ability to keep two or more disparate thoughts of mind at the same time and still function. And I think that inevitably, when you look at the internet, you're going to look at positives and negatives. Individuality, uh, you could argue it's enhanced. I, as a reporter, am enhanced when I have people on the ground in Egypt telling me what's going on or Tunisia. Uh, and I, if I don't have people to cover a tsunami or Katrina, I have cell phone cameras and citizen journalists. And that's a wondrous thing. On the other hand, those individuals may not be vetted. Their information may not have editors. And we may suffer from false information from that or from too much information. There's a very interesting interview in the New York Times this morning with Julie Taymor. And in that interview, she argues that one of the things that, that hurt her play, Spider-Man, uh, was that people were tweeting about it early on. And, and, and it, it formed an opinion that it was a lousy play. And she couldn't escape that. Now, the truth is it's probably a lousy play. Uh, in any case. Have you seen it? Uh, I have not, but I, I don't want to. <laughs> well, because you read the tweets. <laughs> but also, I, no, I haven't seen it either. I, mean, I, I would actually like to now. But what she's know. ignoring is that all the reviewers who did see it didn't like it, uh, almost uniformly. But in any case, she has done some estimable work. But she's making a very important point. If you look at Apple and Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs does no market research. He does it based on his gut. And that used to be the day in television time, right, Carolyn? Yes. Where people would, would literally go on their gut whether this was a good show and stay with it. 
And we had less patience for that now. And, and I remember Brandon Tartikoff saying to me when I was doing a book on television some years ago that the Cosby Show, which debuted in, in um, 1984, was the lowest rated comedy uh, or show that year in all the market research they did. And, and you ask why, and his answer was, because people then were not used to comedy. Comedy was out of fashion in that period of time. And it rated very low because it was unfamiliar to people. And yet it was this humongous hit. So you have to, individuality is harmed by the technology in that case. I mean, is the issue at stake that because of the ease with which people can now communicate quickly across new, whole new landscapes, you have a growing tendency towards herd mentality and conformity electronically? I mean, you know, basically, you know, a thousand, ten thousand tweets gets inside all our brains and makes us all think the same thing. Do you think that's a risk? Yeah, it's a risk, but it's also, you know, it's also a way of charting what's going on in the world. So it, it's a double-edged sword. Um, and it's an opportunity. I mean, as a journalist, uh, if you could chart what people are saying on, on, on Twitter, and you may actually get an inkling of stories that are coming up or a sense of what people are thinking or how they approach things, that's a valuable thing. On the other hand, if it does create a herd mentality, it's not a valuable thing. I mean, I must say, speaking as a fellow journalist, and I say it's always very strange having one journalist interview another journalist, a bit like staring in the mirror. Um, you know, one of the things I find is that tools like Google offer extraordinary power in terms of conducting research and having the ability to quickly pull together a column under pressure in an hour flat, you know, at home, on the train, somewhere. Simply by Googling, you can assemble facts very quickly. I mean, you must find that as well in your own work. Oh, I, it's, it's my library. And, and uh, you know, I wouldn't like to be in the library business because I think they, you know, disturb that and, and disrupt that. On the other hand, if I was in the library business, I would say I am Google and I'm a more efficient system of search than they are because if I do a Google search and I get, for instance, when I was doing my book, I did a search and I said, who is a real William Shakespeare? I got back five million answers. That's totally inefficient. On the other hand, if I go to a library, and I say, who's a real William Shakespeare? And they give me four books to read. That's a, that's a real, what they call, vertical search, and an efficient one. And yet one of the subtle problems, which most people are not aware of, and I myself was not aware of until recently, is that when you go onto a group like Google, you think you're doing a search in an entirely neutral way. And yet those of you who read um, Ellie Parisa's book, um, which is called, what is it called again? Um, the Filter Bubble, What the Internet is Hiding from You, point out that groups like Google now have such brilliant control of the numbers technology and such good knowledge of names and your own personalized preferences that they can now conduct algorithms that effectively mean that even something as seemingly simple and innocent as a search on Google is entirely um, rigged to ensure that they kind of can, can shape or control what you're going to search. I mean, you have algorithms which try and create bespoke or customized search with them guessing what you want. Does that worry you? Uh, yeah, and, and yet there are aspects of it that I like. For instance, mm -hmm. I like the fact that on Amazon, uh, when I go on and I search for a book or I call up a book that I'm interested in, they give me, they say people who bought this book also have bought, and it, it allows me a, a serendipitous discovery of, of other books that I maybe didn't know about. But you I like that? You don't feel, regard that as an intrusion into? I don't, know, and I, and I don't feel it's an intrusion when I do a Google search and I put in jobs. They know from my previous search engine, 
history that I'm more interested in Steve Jobs than I am in Jobs. <laughs> and so it saves me... your potato note. <laughs> Ken Allard is not looking for a new job right now. It, it saves me. It's more efficient of my time, so I like that. On the other hand, the point that he's making in that book about the bubble is that increasingly, and this is true in television land, it's true everywhere, we, we, we have become more narrow and more niche-oriented. So people tend to feed us uh, the, the information they think we're interested in. And based on our search history, because they have a record of what we've searched, they can narrow that, that, that search. And the danger that he points out in that book is that, in fact, you'll get all the information you want and you won't be surprised by anything. But in fact, that's one of the real dangers in this new digital world. Think about bookstores. What happens to the ability to serendipitously find a book? You go into a bookstore and you walk around and suddenly you're picking up a book you've never thought you might have an interest in, on dogs, or chemistry, whatever, mm -hmm. and suddenly you're buying it. And that is one of the reasons why, books, why book publishers are so terrified of the digital world and about e-books. Because what happens to the bookstore and that serendipitous purchase of a book? Let me, if I can, just tell Thank a story, you. which actually is one of the more encouraging stories I ever encountered about the future journalism. Every time you get depressed about what's going to happen to journalism in this world, I think of the story, and it, it goes back to an interview I did in 1995, of all things, with Andy Grove, who was then the CEO and chairman of, of Intel. And Andy Grove, it was before the American Society of the Newspaper, it was about a thousand editors in a, in a large room in Dallas. And I said, Mr. Grove, I said, the internet is four or five years old. In the future, what's the value that you see of these people in this room? And Andy Grove, loving to be a bit of a devil, said, um, zero. And all the editors started sinking down in their seat. And I said, why? And they said, because in, in the future, I don't need an intelligent agent to tell me what to read. I want to design my own newspaper, the Andy Grove newspaper. I'm interested in health. I'm interested in sports. I'm interested in the economy. I'm interested in all this other stuff in a newspaper. So everyone walked out depressed by that. Is this what the future of the internet is? by one of the seers of, of our time. Three years later, at another conference, I'm interviewing Andy Grove, and I quoted what he said. And I said, do you still agree with yourself? And he said, no. I said, why? He said, because I didn't understand that the, the power of serendipity. I didn't understand when I said that in 95, that I, as a citizen, would need to know and want to know about Serbia mm -hmm. or Rwanda, or things that I could not program into what I thought I would like to know about. And, and in fact, there's too much information on the internet. And I need, he said, an intelligent agent, an editor, to okay. sort that out for me. And I think that's still true. Well, I must say, well, that's good news for journalists. Um, and I must say, you know, we at the FT obviously have this debate very intensely the whole time because, you know, personally speaking from the newspaper perspective, the great thing about a newspaper is that by its physical layout, you collide with the unexpected. What, what you call serendipity, I call the fact that your eye flicks across a page and you collide with a story that you didn't expect. Going on to PCs, by contrast, and dealing with news through PCs means that, particularly in the world of financial journalism, you have an entire generation trained to expect to go down tunnels through things like Bloomberg or Reuters, and that most traders will simply chase after what they think they know in a very bespoke, customized way. And so much of the media has been about delivering customized, postponed information in the last decade or two, and people assume that trend would go in one way. Maybe, just maybe, things like the iPad 
provide some kind of tipping point where you have the ability to start colliding with the unexpected again by virtue of the fact that the way that most media organizations are defining their um, developing their iPad apps means that you do have that ability to start colliding again. It, it, that, that is true, and that's I mean, you plus. look at how people are using, sort of physically handling information on the iPad. When you flick across pages, you actually start colliding once again. The, 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 the counter to that, uh, which I do worry about, is the digital world, the, the, an offshoot of the algorithms that Google and, and Facebook and others can concoct, is that they, they can anticipate your whims, your wishes. Mm -hmm. uh, the corollary to that is what happens to newspaper editors and publishers, where they sit in that room and they say, what are the most frequented stories? What stories are most popular with our readers? Now, you have people like Nick Denton, who I, who I admire, and, and uh, most things, not all, not all the things that appear on Gawker, but, and I know they're one of the sponsors here. But, have uh, you appeared on Gawker? Have I what? Have you appeared on Gawker? Yeah, but I, I'm not a particular target. I might be now, but um, <laughs> um, but in any case, Nick... Take that as a badge of honor. <laughs> if Nick cares about you, you matter. <laughs> Nick, Nick said, has been quoted as saying that, that um, I only want to give readers what, what digital pr fingerprint shows they want to read. Well, we know what they want to read. They want to read about Anthony Weiner, and they want to read about Paris Hilton. Uh, they don't want to read about the Greece, Greek financial crisis mm -hmm. or... Um, or, or many other issues that, that maybe we think are important, but, but are not less frequented in terms of poll numbers, in effect. And I worry about that. I worry about a world where, where mo if you look at most investigative reporting, uh, it gets very infrequent uh, hits. Mm. Uh, people don't want to read about that stuff, but they have to. And so there's a part of me as a journalist that does believe in an eat your spinach, spinach approach to the world at least in part. Uh, now, if you do it, and that's all you do, is say, eat your spinach, you're going to be out of business real mm. soon. But I think you ha if you want to do investigative reporting, if you want to keep businesses or politicians honest, you've got to be willing to say, eat your spinach. I'm going to do this story because it's important. Absolutely. Well, I must say, as someone who's spent um, several years looking at the financial sector, I am passionately convinced that one of the long-ignored factors that created the financial crisis was extreme versions of tunnel vision or mental siloization um, on the trading desks and inside banks in that you had these CDO geeks going around doing stuff that people inside that little CDO silo knew about, um, but almost nobody else did. And the CDO geeks, say, in New York had more in common with the CDO geeks in Shanghai or London than with other people around them, partly because they were all members of the new Bloomberg cyber village and chatting to each other but ignoring those around us. And I suspect that pattern is going to play out over and over again in sort of many other areas of life, as you know, the paradox of our modern era is that we have a world simultaneously interconnected with systems, which means that what happens in one corner can blow up everything else, but are having increasing mental and structural fragmentation. The silos. The silos, yes. I can't tap you on that. You've done very well. Look <laughs> at that was supposed to be leading for your great card on silo. <laughs> well. You know, one of the things that, that, that you've, I, I found when I was doing my, my Google book, uh, which was a revelation to me, one of the things as I got into it, I said, I really need to understand what an engineer does, mm. uh, because I didn't. Yes. And, and one of the things, I, discoveries I came out of that two and a half year experience with is an appreciation that the engineers are really the creative content creators, 
in many ways in our world today. And when you talk about creativity, uh, you've got to include not just Martin Scorsese, but a Google engineer, a Facebook engineer, et cetera, because what is content? Content is anything you spend time on. If you spend two hours a day on Facebook, the Facebook platform person who's created that is a content creator. If you spend your time on Google News or any Google site, they are, they are people who are inducing you to spend time there. And one of the things I saw is what does an engineer do? An engineer, A, begins with an attitude, particularly a digital engineer in that, in that world. The attitude is that the old ways of doing things that many people, many of them may be in this room, certainly you and I on this stage, many of the things we do are inefficient. Mm. Uh, to spend three months on a New Yorker story, my God, that's really inefficient. For you to do this this morning and jump on a plane and come back tonight for The Economist and then go off where you have to go tomorrow, that's time inefficient. So they say the old ways of doing things are inefficient, but they then add a second thing, which is the question, why not? Why not do ad ads where you can tell whether people are clicking on only charge an advertiser when they click. Why not make all the news in the world available on Google News? Why not make all the TV shows available on YouTube? Why not, why not, why not? You go down any, any industry, any business, and ultimately what you do is you displace the middleman mm. or redefine what a middleman or middlewoman is. But it, essentially, they are driving many of us to new challenges, and we've got to, A, treat them with the respect that they deserve because they are the person who's creating those apps on the on the iPad. They are creative people. They're software engineers, but they are redefining our world, and we better understand them. And so, if I was in a traditional media business and I was concerned about the individual and giving voice, one of the things I would do first is hire a smart engineer and put them at my elbow and and make sure I listen to them. Right. Okay, that's good advice. Well, in fact, we have just hired somebody for the first time to sit on the IT side, sit on our news desk at the FT in New York. But then um, you've got to make sure you listen to them. Well, of course, the part of the problem is making sure that we can understand what they're saying. Yeah, that's right. But that's actually quite a serious point, then, because, in fact, part of the problem with siloization and fragmentation right. is as the geeks retreat into their geeky little <laughs> corners, um, irrespective of the fact that what they're doing has the ability to affect us all, the technological gap and the linguistic gap is growing. And back to the CDO geeks. Why did no one understand what on earth they were doing? Well, that's partly because they spoke a language no one else understood. But also the mainstream media had labeled their activity as being boring and geeky and dull. And if you want to hide something in plain sight these days, you don't need a conspiracy. You just need to create a situation where hip, cool journalists consider your work to be dull and it will be totally ignored. When I was, uh, I would sit in the Google engineering meetings um, and Larry Page and Sergey Brin, the co-founders, and Eric Schmidt, the CEO, they were all engineers, the three of them. And all the engineers would come in, and they have regular meetings, um, and it's one of the ways they try and keep ahead of the game. And I'm sitting there with my tape recorder trying to hide it so they, I wouldn't be too... But they knew I was there, but essentially I'm, I'm trying not to remind them that I'm there. And You're being an anthropologist. Yeah, no, actually it was an anthropological experience, because yeah. you're sitting there, and I'm saying, I understand maybe half the words they're speaking. They were talking Swahili to me. And, but I had the luxury of time to actually get an interpreter to say, well, what does that word mean? Or what, what is that guy saying? But I was just stunned at the language gap. Well, I mean, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I actually, as an anthropologist, when I was an academic, I did field work in my PhD in a place called Tajikistan. 
And so I had to go to these Tajik villages and learn Tajik, and it was a very alienating experience. And I remember walking into my first CDO conference with investment bankers and having exactly the same feeling. It's like a Tajik, you know, Tajik wedding, big rituals, tribes gathering, having this bonding experience, getting a sense of togetherness excluded from everyone else. But CDO speak was about as baffling as Tajik. But, you know, and the same thing with Google speak, I'm sure, and engineer speak. But 50 years ago, C.P. Snow wrote a book. Uh, which basically heralded this notion, the government and science, and basically mm -hmm. talked about how we can't, we don't speak the same language we don't understand. You would have thought that, that that was a very popular book at the time, was cited by John F. Kennedy when he was president, and yet we keep making the same mistakes. But isn't part of the problem right now that, you know, in order to have people understand what's happening in these silos, say the Google geeks or anyone else, you need to have a cadre of people that might be called silo busters the journalists who go and make a living out of going into the silos and translating it for everyone else, or going into Google speak or something, um, or politicians, political researchers. And yet these days in society, that cadre of silo busters is getting eroded because their resources can't survive in an era when everything's focused on efficiency. Well, efficiency and, and, and you know, to go back to, just look at cable TV, cable mm -hmm. TV news. I mean, essentially, uh, what it's come down to is that it used to be CNN was dominant, uh, is now in third place among the, the three. Um, Fox is essentially a conservative niche identity, uh, though they have some liberals who watch it, but essentially that's their, that's their brand. And the brand value of MSNBC is liberal. And, and so you go to reinforce your views, and if you just consume Fox or MSNBC, uh, you are being reinforced in what you believe. And that's unhealthy. And, and, and that's the silo of you, what you speak. But of course, there again, most of the real innovation or creativity comes when people do jump across silos, don't they? It does. Or even trading. I mean, I remember a great hedge fund telling me that they love the fact that so much of the world is siloized sort of mentally and structurally, because anyone who's a good trader knows there's always mon money to be made jumping between silos. Well, you know, I, I was on a, I was, I, I was being interviewed last week with a with a, a guy who analyzes social networks mm. and, and Google, and it was on Bloomberg TV. And this idiot, and I, I use that <laughs> word advisedly, going on, he said, well, you know, there's no real conflict between Facebook and Google. They have, they, you know, they're in different worlds, different planets. And, 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 and here's a guy who's spending his whole life with his head down looking at numbers, and he's not talking to people. If you go and talk to people at Google and Facebook, they are obsessed with each other. And they know that they are at war with each other. And yet this idiot is sitting there looking at his, in his silo, mm -hmm. looking at numbers, and he is giving investment advice to people. I was just appalled by it. I couldn't believe it, you know. Anyway, it was funny. Well, out of stupidity comes opportunity for others. <laughs> All right. So, but just on the issue of power, though, and what we do, what we do and what governments do about corporate power in this unequal pattern, I mean, there's a wonderful quote from Eric Schmidt of Google saying, I actually think most people don't want Google to answer their questions through bespoke customized search engines. They want Google to tell them what they should be doing next. Do you want Google to tell you what you should be no, doing next? No, and, and I, you know, the, the, one of the other lessons I learned about engineers, I learned that they're create, they can be creative and, and become content creators. But I also learned they can be idiots of arms. And, and that's the perfect example of it. <laughs> and, and Is Eric Schmidt an idiot of what? <laughs> he's, he's a brilliant guy, but he, 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 his, his 
Knowledge of the world is limited. The story. Using this. It's off, by the way. I follow directions. <laughs> in, 19, in 2000, Barry Diller was then media mogul and is the first traditional media company executive to visit Google headquarters, which is above a bicycle store in Palo Alto. And Barry Diller comes in, and Larry Page, the co-founder, is sitting there on his whatever PDA device he had doing this. Sergey Brin rollerblades into the meeting, the other co-founder. And <laughs> really rollerblades? He does, actually. He did several of my interviews. He would rollerblade in. And it wasn't just and, a sort of an act? Oh, no, no, no. He's off. No one knows where he is. He's on a Google Calendar. is supposed to be shared, but no one knows where Sergey and Larry are. And, and Sergey is often windsurfing or bicycling or reading or whatever he's doing. Anyway, Barry Diller's talking to Larry Page, and Page is doing this, and he says, Larry, I'm talking to you. Talk yeah. to me. He says, okay, Barry, I can do both. And Barry says, Larry, choose. I choose this. <laughs> that tells you. So if you're in a world where you choose this and you keep your head down and you're not reaching out, in a world where Google increasingly has to worry about governments regulating them or governments saying we don't share your values, that all information mm -hmm. should be free and available to everyone, i.e. China, Iran, etc. Yeah. Or if you're a company that needs to have Hollywood deals because you want movies or TV shows for you too, or you're a company that wants to have, beyond, have an app on on, on, let's say, the iPhone, or work with telephone companies around the world with your Android system. You have to have relationships. It's not just an engineering business. These are people who are not particularly skilled at relationships. And, and that's a real challenge in the future. Plan. And for Eric, who I, I really do admire, and he's very cooperative with me, and I'm grateful for that, but that's an idiot savant statement. Well, I must say, from an entirely um, distorted personal perspective, I regard the current age a moment when the anthropologists have their revenge against the astrophysics. Because <laughs> suddenly, actually, human relationships start to matter. And people remember that the roots of the word credit in finance come from credere, Latin, meaning to believe, which is a social construct. It's not a computer algorithm. I think, actually, there's one of the great comeuppances to, to engineering companies like Facebook and Google and, and others, this reality that suddenly you've excited concerns about privacy, about mm -hmm. copyright, about your size and your dominance, and about nationalism and national concerns that, that do we in Russia or China want an American company to be dominant? So suddenly, these engineering-based companies are forced to scramble and say, oh my god. And forced to hire anthropologists. <laughs> One right. of the hot new trends in Silicon Valley right now is hiring anthropologists. Most of the big... That's true. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's providing... Um, an unexpected job opportunity for PhDs and Hopefully not for you. <laughs> well, but big, big question. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> well, you too. There you go. Um, I know we've only got a few more minutes, but before we open the audience to questions, I wanted to ask one more thing. Is, do you think, though, there is now a case for the government to step in and con control the degree to which groups like Google or the idiots of Aunt Eric Schmidt can actually go in and collect data about you? and then create sort of algorithms bespoke for you. Do you think they've gone too far? Um, I think there's a danger they've gone too far. I think you've got to disaggregate and look at each one. I mean, for instance, Google doesn't know your name. Um, they don't know who you are. They know the person at that IPO address and what IPS, you know, what, what they're essentially, what their search history is, what they tend to read, uh, what ads they've clicked on, what they've liked or not or stayed with longer. But they don't know your name. So in that sense, it's, it's not a camera over your shoulder. 
On the other hand, Facebook knows your name and knows a lot more. And Google does know your name if you sign up for Google Checkout. Um, and Apple knows your name, et cetera, with iTunes, and has some credit card information, as does Amazon. So there are legitimate and worrisome privacy issues that the government has to look at. And, and, but, but for me to sit back and say, well, this is what we ought to do, and people should be able to opt in rather than opt out, that's a real complicated issue, which I couldn't resolve in, in two minutes on stage here. But, you know, the argument that some privacy experts would, would make is that you sh Google cookies or Facebook cookies should not be allowed to follow you unless you specifically choose to opt in to allow them to, as opposed to what they propose, which is to opt out. In other words, you can opt out and not... I like my cookies in some cases. I like the fact that Amazon has my cookie in terms of other books, that serendipitous experience I was speaking about. I like that Google can shorten my, the time between searches because they have my search history. So there's some value in those cookies. Uh, there's also a pain in the ass quality of those cookies, which you'd like to eliminate. But I, I think government, and this is something engineers are very slow to understand, government has legitimate interest to protect us in terms of privacy, in terms of monopoly mm -hmm. dangers, and in terms of things like copyright. Right. So Ken, Ken loves his cookies. <laughs> Good one. Right, we've got about five minutes, I think, for questions or comments, if anyone would like to join the debate or jump in. We've got a comment or question down the front. Yes, Eric. Andrew. Andrew, sorry. Yeah, Andrew Hayward. Thank you. Uh, Andrew Hayward, thanks. So, uh, Ken, individual in a mass age, what would you, how would you counsel an up-and-coming Ken Oletta who's just starting out along the road that, you know, you've had such great success on? Is it, are there going to be individuals who can get a wide audience and have influence when journalism becomes commoditized by technology and when you have this nichification that you and Julian have been talking about? I, I think that young, yeah, I, I think they will, yeah. I, I think that there's, people want stories. And I think good storytellers will always have a, a place. Um, and, and you look at places that, that, that succeed at storytelling. Uh, and increasingly, you're going to find the New York Times, I suspect under Jill Abramson, will do more storytelling because they in increasingly have to figure out how to differentiate themselves mm -hmm. from, say, the blogosphere or Huffington Post. And one way they do that is good, vivid writing, a little more time on a story, and great storytelling. Same with investigative reporting. But one of the things I would, I would tell that young aspiring journalist is become a multimedia person. Don't, I mean, yes, you have to be able to tell stories. You ought to be smart. You knew, have to know the who, what, and where, when and where of, a, of telling a story. But you better know how to blog and get on the Internet and do video and, and be basically your own producer as well as your news creator. So I, I think you have to be multimedia. You wouldn't tell any kids just to become an, en an engineer instead? No, I, I wouldn't, no, because I wouldn't understand them. <laughs> <laughs> any more comments? Um, <clears throat> my name is Khan Ross. Um, Aben Moglen at Columbia University claims that because governments and large Internet companies like Google and Facebook have taken so much of our personal data and now own it, in the case of Facebook, um, that we've actually lost our identities. We've sacrificed our personal identity for this freedom on the Internet. And he argues that we should 
take back that data, repossess it with this little device he's got called the Freedom Box to take back our own personal identities. Do you, do you think his claim is true? Do you think we've actually lost our identities to the web? No, uh, I don't. Uh, I mean, have, have we lost some things? Yes. I mean, are we, is our privacy menaced potentially? Yes. Uh, I mean, are there kids who are now freely uh, riffing on Facebook and one day when they go on a job interview, that information is going to be used against them potentially? Yes. Um, so they're real questions, and, and Anthony Weiner could tell us, could write a book on this, I think. I mean, <laughs> he's an idiot who, who supposedly understood technology, and yet didn't understand that everything he did was basically recorded and, and kept, and can come back to, and, and thrown in his face. So, I, there are dangers, but I, I, I think the state, I think he's, Eli No? Is, is that what Eli No? No, it's called Abel oh, I, I think he's overstating the case. Well, certainly, if Anthony Weiner does write a book, it'll be well read. But question then: Why don't we take those two comments and questions together, and then we'll have to wrap up? So, Davia Tamman. And this, Davia Tamman. So, could you talk a little bit about the redefinition of privacy? And if you look out ten years from now, are the things that bother us so much for a lack of privacy going to bother people at all, or will it be just taken in stride? Okay, redefinition of privacy and. I just want to know, in your search, you're all taking this very seriously and it's, you know, thoughtfully. What's the funniest thing that struck you in thinking deeply about this topic and preparing perhaps even for this talk? <laughs> okay, that's a wonderful outro, as journalists would say. <laughs> the, um, I, I think the, the question about, first question was about privacy and 10 years from now. I mean, I covered the Microsoft trial. And one of the things that was stunning about that is 99-2000 was that essentially their emails were thrown in their face. Everything they did was not private. It was, it was shared. And it was the first real court case where, in effect, they were wired. Microsoft was wiretapping itself. And one of the reasons they lost is because the evidence was so incriminating against them. Um, Will, did we learn from that? Yeah, a lot of companies now destroy their emails, um, and and that's actually worrisome as well as you know smart on their part. Uh, I don't know whether privacy will ignite public rage the way it probably should, um, because if you're an engineer, what the engineer is doing is trying to constantly push the boundaries of what is permissible, because to an engineer, data is virtuous. They want more data because it helps them predict behavior. We may not want more data. Certainly not our data. So this is going to be a real test as we go forward. And one of the tests is how educated is the engineer becoming to the non-silo silo world, to the world outside of his or her narrow experience. Do they understand that, that all data is not virtuous? A question. I don't know the answer to that. But we're going to watch that battle play out over the next 10 years. <laughs> I didn't prepare for this, so I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the joke secret is uh, we, we sort of exchanged a few emails over a few time zones um, and then agreed we're going to make it spontaneous. <laughs> the funniest thing was when she said, in our debate, I said, I'm not debating you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, there we go. Well, listen, <laughs> I think anyone who tries to debate Ken Arletta is up for a challenge. <laughs> but... Um, it just remains for me to say a very big thank you. I am thrilled to hear that there will always be a need for storytelling and stories. In fact, the good news is that storytelling goes back to the dawn of time with mankind. I mean, 
Why is it that the New York Times trains its rookie journalists to make sure they always put people into stories? Why do we at the FT try to make sure that we get good people stories? Because actually, if you go back to the Bible and even before that, you know, parables, etc., Hollywood today, they've always used people to tell stories. At the end of the day, we are human beings, and that's one reason why stories matter enormously. It's not just about numbers. So as the master storyteller, I'm delighted, and please do keep telling stories so we can all read and have our world a little bit more elucidated, even with some jokes in it too. So thank you. Thanks. Thanks.